Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. This is Money and Me. My special guest today is Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer from Flow. Today, we're going to take a look at expectations from investors for a pandemic-era tool that could combat the economic blow from COVID-19 for the U.S. economy from the Fed in a much-anticipated speech expected later today. The Dow shake-up. Which companies could benefit? Which could suffer? Are more investors picking up junk ETFs and just why? are they doing that? Speaking of ETFs, are they the primary instrument driving the red-hot demand for gold? And all of yesterday, we were discussing, speaking of demand, Ant Financial and that IPO, Ant Group, controlled by Alibaba founder Jack Marr, and the group's latest IPO. How do you get in on that IPO action? Are there indirect ways that the retail investor can participate? Well, we're going to find out. Stay with us. First up, good morning, Arun. How are you? I am very good, Michelle. How are you? I am doing well. What are you expecting? So later today, we're going to hear at Jackson Hole, the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, outlining what is expected to be the central bank's most active efforts to spur inflation to a healthy level. The expectation is for the inflation target that was never quite met to to move to sort of a range and for the Fed to be decoupled from having to keep to a specific target, therefore allowing inflation to rise perhaps without intervening in the economy. So briefly, tell us, what are you expecting of Jerome Powell's remarks today? More of the same in that, you know, more talk of stimulus that's driving markets or quite the opposite? So you're completely right. Like the Fed has been in an extremely difficult position because the last, you know, ever since the global financial crisis, like 12 years ago, no matter what the Fed has done, inflation seems to be something that's genuinely not coming up in the U.S. economy. Mm. So The typical levers the Fed used to do is whenever inflation was running too high, they used to increase interest rates. When inflation is too low, they used to drop interest rates with the hope that that will spur the economic engine to try and, you know, generate inflation again. The flip side to that was on in the labor market. The Fed used to have a dual policy to try to ensure that if labor market got too hot, Again, they used to increase interest rates. What's happening right now, be it the past 12 years and especially exacerbated by the COVID crisis, is in spite of interest rates basically being slowed at zero on average for the past 12 years, the U.S. has just not seen any inflation. If you go back in time, like about a year and a half or two years ago, there were the first green offshoots of inflation And a lot of market participants started blaming the Fed for increasing interest, the Fed interest rate to like about 1.5, 1.75%. And they claimed that that kind of like stifled the economy. So now what the Fed is looking to pivot to is realizing that whatever has been occurring in the past has not worked. And let's make no mistake about this. Nobody wants a Japan 2.0. Basically, you know, for like 20 years or like two or three decades, Japan was just stuck in stagflation. There was no inflation at all, no true growth in the economy. So what the Fed is trying to do right now is rather than having a target of 2%, they're going to try and switch that into an average inflation targeting, which basically means 
it's a blank check that mm. interest rates are going to stay at zero. Mm. Even if inflation starts shooting up to like three, three and a half percent, because of the past 12 years of it basically being zero, it seems that they are more comfortable with inflation being even at 4% for the next 10, 12 years. So from that perspective, it just seems like not only will they keep interest rates at basically zero, they will try and take upon themselves any other measures, regardless of how you know crazy red hot the labor market gets, though that's a very distant problem right now given the whole COVID pandemic, but you know, including stuff like putting a floor on various asset prices. But what I mean by that is they are out there in the open market looking to buy junk bond ETFs. They're looking to buy single name corporate bonds. They're looking to buy potentially equities in the future. Anything and everything that they can do to try and provide as benign an economic market as possible for companies to try and pump in more money to increase production, increase the labor market participation, and thereby hope that inflation comes back into the market. Okay, and this, you know, inflation, this change in the stance on inflation, is that the new pandemic era tool that all the headlines are screaming about that the Fed is expected to use? So the issue, I think, comes along where, you know, in an ideal world, given the fact that it was 0% inflation for the past 12 years, we can hope that it will be exactly 3 to 4% inflation for the next 10, 12 years, and then everything becomes, you know, back to normal. The issue is that it never happens like that, right? Like, no matter what the Fed might do today, Mm -hmm. the repercussions of that in the next five or 10 years, again, I'm not talking about for the next six months, one year or two years, Mm -hmm. where they pretty much categorically stated that interest rates will stay at zero. The issue is what happens five or 10 years from now. And this takes me back to an interview that some journalists were having with Alan Greenspan. And, you know, back then in 1998, 1999, the whole dot-com bubble, he came up with this whole phrase, irrational exuberance. He started pumping up. Before that, he started to pump up interest rates. When the crash happened, he dropped interest rates extremely quickly, very concerned about the overall economy. What that led to was the great financial crisis. And he himself has kind of admitted that, where you let interest rates stay close to zero for far too long, a massive bubble formed in the mortgage sector where your average household, even if they did not have the financial capability to purchase houses and actually pay off the loan, because there was 0% down payment, because there was 0% interest, there was a lot of speculation in the housing market, which led people to believe that they were a lot wealthier than what they actually are. Because purely on a mark-to-market basis, they seem to think that because their house, which was purchased for, say, like $100,000, is now worth $250,000, I can take a second mortgage on that, or, you know, I can try and basically monetize that value Mm -hmm. and, you know, in cash that money and do something with it. The problem is, when you start tinkering around with interest rates to such a large extent, and this is a massive experiment, right? There, And to be honest, I don't have the right answer for this either. Mm -hmm. And for that matter, neither does Jerome Bauer to some extent. But uh, the, the problem is when you start tinkering around with interest rates to such a large extent, you never know what the actual outcome is going to be. Will inflation spike up with now with the commitment that Fed is basically saying that interest rates are going to be zero for a very long time? Odds are it really will. But the question then becomes, at what point does the Fed start realizing maybe this, you know, the, the genie's out of the bag and we need to try and figure out how to try and tame this thing now? Again, this is not a problem for right now, and it's a problem that they do want it to occur in the economy, 
But the question is, what are going to be the long-term effects of this? And that's something that is a big question mark to a lot of investors, where in such an uncertain world that we're living in right now, given the pandemic, given the way interest rates are at close to zero, but yet inflation is not even creeping even a little bit higher, asset bubbles are forming in multiple asset classes across the globe, what's going to be next? And that's the biggest question mark. All right. It's good takeaway, that one. All right. Let's move now to the shakeup of the Dow, one of the oldest and best known gauges of the U.S. stock market. We see the exit of Exxon, Pfizer, Raytheon. They'll be replaced by Salesforce, Amgen and Honeywell. So the reconfiguration was prompted by Apple's uh, four to one stock split, the upcoming one. The Dow swapping out three of the 30 components of the index for three new entrants. I liked how Chris Zaccarelli described it uh, from independent advisor. Alliance. He said the changes are a sign of the times out with the energy in with the cloud. Do you think that uh, the inclusion means good things for certain sectors? And, you know, what, what, is, what is it telegraphing to you? So, you know, 20,000 feet in the air, I completely agree with that rationale, right? Where uh, the Dow, it picks 30 components that try to, in their perspective, it constitutes the economy as a whole. But let's just take a step back into the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. If we look at the last decade, of the companies that were basically brought into the Dow, their appreciation over the past 10 years was at something like less than 0.5% per annum. The companies that were removed from the Dow went up by over 10%. Now, that's the last decade. Now, let's take a look at the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, the companies that were basically booted off uh, Dow dropped by 2%. Now, obviously, the starting point is a bit uh, difficult because, you know, that was right smack in the middle of the dot-com crisis. But the companies that were basically brought into the Dow went down by over 10%. So in terms of pure data, taking a look at the timestamps of 10 years and 20 years, the companies that have actually been brought into the Dow versus the ones that have been booted out, there's been a marked outperformance of the companies that have actually been taken out. So now that's just to give an idea to the investors wherein or all the listeners of your show that just purely based on headlines of what the Dow index is doing, while there might be a very short term pop in the share, by that I mean like, you know, a very quick price appreciation, Mm -hmm. the day or a couple of days prior to the stock being brought into an index because, you know, you have a number of ETFs, you have hundreds of billions of dollars that are following the Dow Jones ETF. What I mean by that is when you take a company out of the index and you bring another company in, these ETF providers, they have to rejig the underlying assets that they are holding. Uh-huh. And by that, what I mean is they have to actually go out and buy stock in your Salesforce, Amgen, Honeywell, and they have to go and sell out the stock of Exxon, Pfizer, Raytheon. Right. So from that perspective, there's a massive short-term demand that spikes up the share. Mm. And that's great. And then there are a lot of like high-frequency hedge funds that try and monetize that kind of action. Is that applicable for the retail investors? I don't think so. So it's more important, again, to not just go on the headline news that, mm. oh, this is what Dow Jones is doing. Mm. Let me buy the stock too. Mm. Mm. Be careful. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, because we did see a one-day surge for Salesforce, even as it was cutting, saying it was going to cut a thousand jobs. No doubt. I mean, excluding even the job aspect, excluding all the COVID pandemic stuff, whenever a stock is announced that it's coming on to a very large index, Tesla and S&P, uh, Salesforce and Dow, numerous cases every time, right? There's always a pop. 
but that's always post facto, right? Like it's already been announced. The high frequency guys have already gotten in to begin with. And, you know, the last thing, the listeners of the show, which are primarily retail investors, Mm. should be very careful to be the last ones holding the bank. All right. Great insights this morning, Arun. Thank you for that. Arun Pai joining us, uh, special guest, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Let's talk about a piece of news that has caught my eye. Investors apparently searching for yields are turning to increasingly riskier corners of the market. They're looking at junk bonds. Uh, that's what a research firm studying inflows to ETFs holding below investment grade debt noted that junk bonds are picking up steam. Why? So this is exactly one of the sad ulterior outcomes of what we talked about in the first segment of your show, where if you leave interest rates so low, your average investor or your institutional investor, like everyone across the spectrum, realizes that the amount of money that's being left in their account is basically earning nothing. I've got to start doing something with it. Questions then become, what do you start doing with it? Mm. Like you can go into... Apple bonds or Google bonds, like ultra high investment grade companies. But then you start realizing over five years, I'm going to earn like one, one and a half percent or something on that. Okay. So then we throw that out of the window. Sure. A little bit of money can be parked in there. And that's why we can see a crazy rally in those bonds too. But I got so much money sloshing around the economy. What is my next step? And I keep going down the totem pole of quality Mm -hmm. until we finally arrive at either junk bonds or penny stocks. And like penny stocks, you know, companies that have gone bankrupt, like Hertz, the share price is rallying four times, six times. Kodak, a company that had basically absolutely nothing. Like you, you get all these various storied stocks and the list is truly endless, right? Like small cap, basically junk stocks. It's had some little story, uh, penny stock uh, numbers, you know, oh, Robinhood investors are looking at these stocks. Okay, let me start and try and like uh, preempt their rally and let me like scale up into the stock. So we're seeing all of these avenues and junk. I know you specifically asked the junk bond ETFs, but that is one of the more easier ways for an investor to just look at that asset class and say, Oh, okay, this is an asset class that's giving me, I don't know, something like four to six and a half percent. This seems phenomenal right now. Let me put my hard earned money and just try and chase the yield. And that is exactly when things start going wrong because Mm -hmm. Back in 2000, you know, three or four to 2007 or eight, this is exactly what happened to the mortgage crisis, where people just pumped in all their money or into like 5% down payment, 3% down payment into mortgages. And then the massive crash happened and they were liquidated over the course of the next six months to a couple of years. You know, so it's very important to not just become overly greedy and just like chase the market. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important to try and truly derive where value can be. Because what was the purpose of, you know, the whole reason for interest rates being so low, what the Fed is hoping that people will do is try and take your money and put it into productive investments. From from the perspective of entrepreneurs, it's starting up a company, setting up production lines, generate true returns in the economy by hiring people, producing goods, Mm -hmm. selling them, making a profit, getting that economic engine to roar again. That would be the ideal perspective. So, but mm, go ahead. 
you know, they're going back into junk bonds again, like they're going back into penny stocks. That's the problem. Because people have that lens of thinking if the yields are so low, then the risk is warranted. They think that. And they also, I think, uh, you know, I came across this piece of research, uh, CFRA is saying given a likely economic improvement in 2021 and with interest rates so low, there are investors who are wise to take on credit risks as, they, as they've been doing. But you disagree. It's a very, like, just because you diversified into buying a junk bond ETF mm. doesn't make you safe. Mm-hmm. Right, because if in say, uh, like an Argentinian bond is a great example. You know, like a hundred-year bond issued at something like a two, three percent interest rate. Because of this crazy drop in interest rate, people literally doubled up their money because the tenor, the duration of the bond was so long. They doubled up their money and they're thinking, oh, this is fantastic, right? This is how easy money can be made. And whenever you know you can start making money in too easy a fashion in the kind of the capitalistic economy that we live in, one needs to take a step back and start wondering, is this really that easy? Is there something that I'm missing? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the junk bond ETF space, look at the companies that are that constitute these junk bonds, like these ETFs. It's going to be like your oil and gas companies, your fossil fuel companies, companies that are obviously not doing that well, that are hence being able or hence are in the market being willing to provide a cost of capital at like six, eight percent vis-a-vis your Google and Apple that are being able to get away with like having a cost of capital of like one, one and a half percent for a five-year bond. So my point is like, while the market might not be perfect, at the same time, every investor needs to be cognizant of what the market is saying. And there's a reason why it's called junk bonds, right? So just because the headline... <laughs> That's terrifying. I don't know why people buy that with that name. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> terrifying. But people have made their fortunes in them. But that does tie in with Bank of America warning of value traps, you know, saying that there is a danger of investing in stocks with compelling valuations. They're often cheap for a reason. Uh, and we'll talk about value traps in a while. But first, I want to talk about Ant Group. That's all we were over yesterday. Alibaba founded Jack Ma as Ant Group reporting more than a 1,000% jump in profits for the first half of this year. And Ant Group announcing their listing of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and the Shanghai Exchange as well. Are there indirect ways that a listener can get in on Ant Group's latest IPO, now the, the biggest in the world? Sure. So from the perspective of investors sitting in Singapore, uh, this Ant Group stock is mm-hmm. going to be listed in China onshore, as well as in Hong Kong. So from the perspective of a retail investor, access to Hong Kong stock is extremely easy. It could be anywhere from like your DBS, Interactive Brokers, Paxo Bank, your online discount brokerage to your, uh, you know, if your bank provides you access like a DBS uh, index, uh, like like the DBS platform, sorry, you can get access to the Hong Kong uh, exchange very seamlessly and you can purchase stock. So from that perspective, it's relatively straightforward. From the perspective of whether you don't want, uh, you know, single name risk of mm. having purchasing just that stock, mm. there are a number of ETFs. Like uh, Renaissance International IPO ETF comes to mind to begin with because what this company has done, uh, what this ETF tracker has done is investing into uh, IPO companies across the globe. So if you're, if, an invest, if a listener of your show is of the bullish mindset that, you know, there's a lot of like hot names coming onto the market, 
uh, I want to get involved in this space. I don't know how to do this mm-hmm. in a very simple, easy manner. Mm-hmm. There are always, you know, ETFs come to the rescue. Renaissance International IPO ETF is one such name. If you want, uh, if the listener is looking at a more general exposure into the tech space within China specifically, mm. you know, with the whole notion that China is going to do a lot better than the U.S., etc., yep. etc., et Invesco China Tech ETF is another really good name. If you want more generic exposure into China, there's obviously iShares MSCI China ETF. Now, the reason why I mention even these more generic ETFs names is because Ant Financial, given the scale and size of an IPO, that's going to be occurring, where they're looking to raise anywhere from, I don't know, like 25 to $30 billion, making it the world's largest IPO, market cap of $300 billion or 200 $300 billion, give or take. And all of these uh, more generic, larger-named ETFs and financial will definitely have to take a decent percentage allocation of it. So, you know, for the more cautious investor who doesn't want too much single-name risk, there are options. You can go directly into the stock also directly from, you know, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. There's no issues. The Singapore resident, there's no issues like that at all. Okay. And were you at all interested in looking at, at the prospectus and going through the details? I, to be honest, I've not had the time to do that just yet. <laughs> because we work you the- so hard on this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love coming on the show. But, you know, honestly, from the perspective of the company, like hats off to Jack Ma. Of all, and I am in the fintech space uh-huh. there's a lot of fluff in this space yeah this is one company you know hats off to these guys they have managed to pull off something truly spectacular profitable crazy revenue growth something that genuinely has made a change in how the chinese consumer which is not that easy to reach out to unlike in singapore where it's like you know five million people in a place like china that is so massive so diverse to be able to set up a platform where not just like one aspect of the platform, but I think there was some statistic where something like 50% of the users of the platform use over five services of it. Wow. And that's phenomenal, right? I mean, don't take me wrong. I I love DBS. I'm a shareholder of DBS. Mm -hmm. But of all the 15 icons that I can see in my (laughs) app, I literally use probably just one or two of them, right? But, you know, China, uh, Jack Ma figured it out. So kudos to him. Uh, Well worth all the riches capitalism has uh, offered him. So interesting. All right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Bank of America warning of value traps, saying for investors, quality value lies in traditional industries like durables, auto, metals, mining, construction materials, and semiconductor. What are these value traps uh, that Bank of America thinks investors should avoid? And do you agree with it? So I, to be completely honest, as a value investor, I have, you know, faced the brunt of uh, having been invested into value traps. So value investing, taking a step back, is very simply, you look at an asset, you try and derive what the future returns of this asset can be, and you try and purchase that asset at a reasonable valuation. The problem is, in a market like what's going on right now, where your tech stock, Uh, be it Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, are trading at ridiculously high multiples, right? Right. Like a a 40 multiple for a $2 trillion market cap stock is insane because the kind of growth rate the company is required to achieve over the next 10 years Mm -hmm. means the market cap or like it starts eclipsing GDPs of continents, which is just, you know, it's just 
theoretically, Staggering. it's obviously impossible. <laughs> so, but the flip side, though, is when you come into the value trap space where you look at various stocks, right? Uh, it could be banks to some extent right now. Mm. It could be some, uh, a number of other industries that Bank of America has touched on. In terms of pure fundamental uh, metrics, like price-to-earnings ratio, price-to-book ratio, uh, return on equity, at present-day status, these numbers uh, on a top-level basis look very attractive. Like, you know, you have a number of stocks in the shipping space at like 4 or 5 price-to-earnings ratio. You have a number of bank stocks, like the larger retail banks across the globe, at like single-digit multiples, including in China. You have property developers along the same lines. You have some REITs, especially in the retail space, uh, trading at, you know, fractions of their price to book, which literally means they can, like, get rid of their, all their debt, sell off all the assets, and make more money than what is the market cap of the company. The problem, though, is the company is bleeding cash, but some of these companies are bleeding cash right now. So while from an asset perspective, they're still asset rich, from a cash flow perspective, they're bleeding cash. Flip side is from price to earnings ratio. If they're trading at like four or five uh, earnings multiple. Mm. The problem is what is going to be the earnings in the next two or three years? Will Amazon come along and will it completely disrupt it and make the company go bankrupt? Will your cash flows dry up and start becoming negative and you start bleeding cash? That is where value traps come along where while taking a look at just the pure numbers, it might look very attractive mm -hmm. as a historical earnings. The question always is, what are the future earnings going to be? Mm. And how do you present value that back down to today to see whether it's attractive or not? With these new disruptors in the mix. So, uh, I mean, are you moving to these cyclical industries at all? The durables, the metals, the mining, the construction? Uh, so, I think there is a lot of value in that space. I mean, and we could see like Berkshire Hathaway, you know, going into like a couple of mining stocks. Uh, I personally am still looking more towards banks. I have not gotten around how a very asset-heavy company like in the construction space or anything can do well. Cyclicals are something that I'm definitely looking at quite a lot more closely right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to slowly start scaling in over the next, you know, towards the closer to the end of the year. Uh, sadly, I've not been partaking in the crazy tech rally as much as I would have wished I would have. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that's the nature of value investing, right? Like it's all about the long-term five or 10-year kind of investment horizon, not a... I'm going to buy Apple at 400, thinking that it'll go to 500 and then try and sell out. Oh, always a voice of reason. We love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us, Arun. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, joining me this morning in Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.